0: most parents actually understand that that you know falling when you're learning to walk is part of learning how to walk Mm. that's the beauty of being little right (laughs) they can fall and get right back up we want them to learn that before they're our age when it has more repercussions of course right so i think we can reframe how we think of what failure is so that it's part of learning
1: That's Julie King. She's taught parents to rethink failure for decades. She's written two parent touchstones, including her best-selling book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen. And core to her educational and compassionate approach to parenting is the idea that we should embrace what failure can teach our kids instead of fearing what it says about them. That's true for our kids and for us as we grow up too. And today we're exploring the simple but hard-to-execute idea of what it means to embrace a failure mindset so that setbacks can actually be the foundations for us to step forward. I'm Caroline moderesi turani and this is American Metamorphosis. What are parents telling you? What are parents most worried about today um, when it comes to how they're parenting and the mindset that they're parenting in?
0: Lots of issues. (laughs) Uh, One of the things on parents' minds is how do I get my kids to do things? So how do I get my kid to go get in the car seat? It's a battle of wills. It can become a battle of wills. Mm. Yes. And so one of the things I help parents figure out how to do is how to partner with their kids, how to get on the same team so that it's not... Your will against mine, but we're working together.
1: Mm, That's a really good point. And and I'm wondering, just as well, Julie, in terms of being a bit more kind to ourselves about if we do make a mistake, right? Well, you know, maybe you lose your temper and you think, I made a mistake. Like I failed in that moment. I, I should have kept my cool. I shouldn't have yelled or I shouldn't have snapped or I was too short. And, you know, there are these sort of like daily moments where we can perhaps give ourselves some grace or and sort of use failure in a more constructive, transformative way. Yes, this issue actually just
0: came up with my workshop that I did yesterday. <laughs> we were talking about the fact that, yes, sometimes we lose it with our kids and we raise our voice, we yell, even though we swore we would never do that. And it's such a wonderful opportunity to learn the skill of repair, to go back afterwards. And we were practicing it in the workshop. What do you actually say? You might say, you know, I was thinking what happened this morning when it was time to go, you didn't want to go. And I felt pressured because I needed to get to work. And I yelled and you didn't like that. And I didn't like that either. You know what I wish I had done? Mm. You know, so we can then tell them, this is what I wish I had said. And those are skills that if we didn't hear that language when we were growing up, it might not come naturally to us. It might not be obvious what to say. But it can be so powerful to reconnect with our kids when we've had that kind of a rupture and it, in a way, it, it it strengthens our relationship because our kids know that we will come back and repair, that they learn how to come back and repair. And we're all humans who sometimes aren't our perfect selves, but we can come back together again.
1: What Julie is talking about hits hard for me as a parent. We're trying to prepare our kids to be prepared for life and life is messy and it's hard and it's unpredictable. But to set our kids up for long-term success, adjusting our own relationships to failure is pretty important. But we're often kinder to our kids when they mess up than we are to ourselves as parents when we inevitably fall short. People share videos around. Um, you know, if you get a video from your friend of like, oh, look at my kid trying to walk and like, oh, it's so cute. They make a couple of steps and then boom, you know, bounce on their bum. And there's something sort of magical and lovely that we associate because we know it's trying to get to this bigger thing, this next stage. Essentially, it's a transformational, transformative moment. They're going from crawling to walking and it's, it's you know, a milestone step. And it means that they're progressing and they're moving forward. Um, but at a certain point, we stop viewing those little bumps as cute. And we stop viewing those transformational pain points, I guess, as cute. Yes. And I'm wondering when that happens and how we can kind of get back into that mindset a little bit that, you know, actually, no, it's all right. It's okay. It's just part and parcel. It's part of this transformation, this evolution of, of them growing and it's charming and it's, it's quite lovely.
0: So we're still learning as adults. That's part of what we're teaching our kids too. Every time we acknowledge how they're feeling, I remember my my one year old daughter. She was trying to turn the water on us. I said, "That's so frustrating." She was going, "Uh, uh," and when I said, "That's so frustrating," she said, Fustating, "Frustrating, frustrating." <laughs> right? Like, you know, what am I doing in that moment? I'm I'm connecting with her. Mm-hmm. I'm giving her words for her feelings, so she doesn't have to cry or grunt. I'm you know I'm I'm helping her understand that that feeling by naming it, it's real. I'm not freaking out about it. It happens. You're validating it, not shaming it. Yes.
1: Yes. To Julie, the trick for flustered, exhausted, well-meaning parents is to embrace that agency as part of the natural order of things, to view the many mistakes and obstacles as part of growth.
0: I've asked Betty parents what their goals are. And there are certain goals that seem to resonate with just about anybody who takes any of my workshops or works with me. I think we want children to have a strong sense of who they are. How do I feel? We want them to have a sense of their place in community. And we want them to know how to resolve conflict. We want them to know how to deal with adversity, which is what resilience is all about. I mean, there's certain kinds of failures that we wouldn't allow our children to have. We're not going to let allow them to run out in the street. But if we don't let them have things go the wrong way let's say right then they don't learn what do you do when things don't go the way you want them to go and isn't that something we want them to learn how to do so i would suggest we can reframe it as learning for themselves which is the most powerful way for a kid to learn
1: You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the creative content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we're exploring different mindsets and unpacking the science behind not just how, but why we think and act the way we do. Tapping into these insights can empower us to regain a sense of control in today's uncertain times and help leaders inform and refine their decision-making. In season five, we're building on everything that we've learned, but we're tackling a different type of obstacle, ourselves. And today we're talking about our ability to be compassionate to ourselves when we fail and to view failure with respect and not fear. It's a familiar notion for any parent. We teach our kids that failure is something that happens to us all. But as we grow older, it's harder to embrace that notion for ourselves. Sometimes we need reminders that even when the stakes are high, failure remains the key to growth.
2: I think the world is tougher, crueler um, on women failing. Look at all the, the guys that run big funds blow them up. And then within months, they're raising another fund. My name is Jacqueline Novogratz. I am the founder and CEO of Acumen, which is a global nonprofit.
1: Women like Jacqueline are still something of a rarity. Only 2% of venture capital dollars went to female founders last year. But since she founded Acumen in 2001, Jacqueline has injected over $150 million into 150 companies fighting poverty worldwide and moved about a billion dollars into the marketplace, all through a philosophy that she spearheaded called patient investing.
2: So patient capital was this idea that we have a new generation of entrepreneurs that are hellbent on solving problems. Um, not simply on making profit. And they needed the kind of capital that would allow them to start, to try, to experiment, to fail, to try again. And that if we invested for 10 to 15 years and we accompanied those entrepreneurs who were trying to build new solutions to electrification or to healthcare or to education, then we would not only see outsized impact, but we would create more efficient ways of using that capital so that long term, those companies could grow by tapping into the more traditional impact investors and and capital markets.
1: Hmm. I'm curious what you said, Jacqueline, you're talking about failure there. And, you know, one imagines that as a, you know, as a funder, that you want to fund things that will succeed and not necessarily fail. How have you evolved in your understanding and maybe
2: the way that you relate to failure? Hmm. Well, I think I've had so many failures in my own life that it has taught me that if you rule out failure, you rule out success. Hmm. So many of us want to change the world, and yet we also want to play it safe. And I actually think that the nonprofit sector has reinforced uh, that Philanthropy should be where we see the most risk being taken with our capital. Mm. And yet too often we see the least amount of risk. Mm. I would actually argue that Silicon Valley has trademarked the idea of fail fast, but those failures are made with the expectation that you'll have an outsized financial win. And so it will offset your failure. What's hard about making change in areas that are, are are very low income is that you won't have that unicorn financial win necessarily to offset your other failures and yet we need entrepreneurs who are willing to try where markets and governments have failed the poor and fall down a few times mm. before they actually get the model right and patient capital allows them to do that
1: so when you were devising this philosophy of of capital patient investing how did you have to factor in failure to that philosophy?
2: Hmm. That is such a great question. I think I probably used the language before I understood what it meant, hmm. which may be part of the entrepreneurial journey. It's almost like the fake it
1: till you make it sort of idea.
2: Yeah, because I, I was a little afraid when we were starting Because the idea was seen as so radical, if you will, that we were going to take philanthropy, invest, um, measure what mattered, and reinvest our returns. Uh, Everyone thought it was a crazy idea. And so I wanted to prove in the early years that it was a brilliant idea, which made me look for the perfect. And someone gave me a very great gift when he said, You know, how's it going? And I said, we've looked at 700 organizations and I can't find any. And he said, Jacqueline, make investments in anything that you can find, because just make the assumption that the first three that you make will fail or at the very most, they'll be mediocre, but they will teach you an amazing amount. That frightened me, but it also freed me because he was right. The first couple, not all three, but the first couple of investments that we made did fail. And I learned very, very quickly what not to do, hmm. um, even though it might have taken longer to more deeply understand what to do.
1: Well, I love that. And I, I, one of the things I wanted to come back to, Jacqueline, is you were talking about uh, the, the sort of early origins of patient investing and There are very few VC founders that are are, are women. It's certainly a very male-oriented, male-dominated industry. And I wonder if you could just walk us through how people approached and responded to you as a woman as you were introducing a relatively unusual, unorthodox philosophy when it came to patient investing, particularly a kind of philosophy that, as you
2: said, wasn't going to necessarily deliver a big unicorn payoff. One that really leaps to mind was after I had just been in rural Bihar, um, working with one of our companies that did rice husk gasification to create a cleaner electricity grid on on a mini grid basis.
1: For all of us wondering, rice husk gasification is the process of turning rice husks into an energy source for things like cooking.
2: I was in London and I met with these hedge fund guys and I was explaining what we do and that we need the patient capital because doing something like this is so complicated. And in fact, you don't know how to price it. You don't know how the technology will work right at the beginning. Low-income people don't trust you. All these different reasons, but how excited I was for this opportunity. And the guy looked at me and he said, I don't know, Jacqueline, maybe you need us to run your businesses for you I said excuse me and he said well it sounds like you're having a lot of problems with that business and I said um can I ask you a question have you ever been to India and he's like no I said well have you ever been to Bihar well obviously no I said do you know what rice husk gasification is he said Jacqueline I know how to run businesses and I said well with all respect you know how to say buy sell buy sell Give us a chance. We'll help make this business what it can be. And and now it's a very successful business. Did you work with them? Did you work with them or did you walk away? I walked out of that meeting.
1: It's so interesting. I wonder, do you still get that same kind of response now or because of the success? Has the success kind of insulated you in some way or inoculated you some way from those sorts of interactions?
2: Every now and then I, I still encounter them. Um, they don't feel the same. We've brought goods and services to 450 million people around the world. Um, We know a lot on the ground. And so if you put us at a table where everyone's talking a big game, we're often then turned to to say, well, what actually can be done? Mm. That is a voice that is a voice I'm very proud that Acumen has earned But it took a long time and a lot of um, those humiliating moments, I would say, for the first 10 years or so. Two
1: decades spent in the face of risk-taking, failure, misogyny and humiliating moments landed Jacqueline here as one of Forbes' 100 Greatest Living Business Minds. She carries with her lessons learned for the next generation. You're invited to to do a lot of speaking and a lot of other, you know, businesses might be in the room, some a lot smaller than your organization and some that don't have the same kind of, you know, capital behind it. So how do you help small business founders embrace this idea of the failure mindset and what that mindset really needs to look like?
2: I'm a huge believer in um, role models business models and in storytelling, rather than telling people what to do or how to do it, um, showing them what others have done and that it's possible. And that frankly, unless they put themselves out and dare to fail, they will never succeed in the way that they might dream. My name is Julia Krabowski and I'm a managing director
3: and partner at the Boston Consulting Group. So I spend most of my time working with chief financial officers, so CFOs. Uh, CFOs have a very difficult job, especially in today's environment, as it's more and more dynamic, there's
1: more and more uncertainty. Like Jacqueline, Juliet tries to encourage the C-suite executives that she works with to view failure less as a friction point and more as a mindset to embrace. Behind this question of friction is a question
3: about uncertainty. And how do we deal with uncertainty? And when I think about CFOs, and frankly, all leaders, we've moved away from a world of having this sage on the stage who's supposed to know everything, command and control, to a world where now you have more of the guide on the side, the person who's asking the really good questions and enabling others. And I think when it comes to this topic of friction or uncertainty, be it ESG or technology or whatever it might be, a really good leader and a really good CFO asks good questions Mm -hmm. and they bring the right team around
1: to help them answer them. Right now, CFOs everywhere are having to balance long-term goals with a fear of near-term failure as they navigate the pandemic, the recession, market shocks, and so much more it's a phenomenon that Juliet refers to as staying the course while staying responsive. I think this this concept of staying the course while staying responsive, it's a
3: really powerful and interesting tension because as a starting point, any leader needs to think about what is my purpose? Not necessarily as an individual, but as an organization, what is our purpose? What do we really bring to society and what do we want to drive longer term? And at the same time, You have to have your ear to the ground to hear signals. What's changing and how do I respond to that? Now you can Mm -hmm. fall off either end of the horse, right? If you stay the course without having your ear to the ground, you may miss very important information around what your customers need, what your people need. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you're too sensitive and too responsive, you may be whipsawing around and not achieve any long-term goals. Mm. And so it's, you know, we sometimes talk about it as operating at two speeds, right? Thinking about the long-term, setting the foundation, Um, committing to investments and actions that may take years to manifest, but that are foundational to your strategy, while at the same time looking around and asking yourself, what fundamentally and foundationally has changed that I need to either incorporate in my longer term actions or that I need to layer on top and add to it. I think the way that CFOs, that good CFOs thread that balance is by coming right back to purpose and to strategy. Mm -hmm. And what is it that we're trying to achieve and staying grounded there so that whenever you might get distracted, potentially too far distracted, you can pull yourself back and ask, well, does this really help us to achieve our long-term goals? What Mm -hmm. really matters here and what's really driving value
1: given our unique purpose and our unique strategy? That unique perspective starts at the top and it requires vision from leaders to execute. Earlier, Jacqueline reminded us that women aren't given the space to fail. And yet Juliet says, based on data, that women tend to overperform in the C-suite. We actually did
3: some research recently where we looked at female CFOs and what we found was a couple of things. So disproportionately, women who are CFOs have a non-finance background. They they, they they're studied something different in college. They came from different parts of the business. They didn't come up straight through finance. So it was one interesting thing, which I think, you know, potentially in today's world provides a real competitive advantage, right? It allows for different perspectives and vantage points. But we also found that when organizations put a female CFO in place, it drives outsized returns. Mm. So we have some interesting data around impact on stock performance, on the percent of revenue that comes from the innovation
1: agenda, all sorts of interesting things. Coming from a non-business background herself, Juliet exemplifies the data here. When I was 18, I
3: absolutely knew what I was going to do with the rest of my life, and that was to be a classical clarinetist. Wow! And I did go off to a music conservatory. I have a bachelor's of music. I don't have a bachelor's of art or science. Um, and while I was in music school, I, I recognized, oh, you know, I'm interested in some other things too. I'm interested in economics and business. And I started experimenting in terms of my career. But if I'm being frank, I think my untraditional background gives me a bit of a competitive advantage. I think that I connect with creativity in a different way, with creative people. I sometimes feel like an outsider, which I think is a good thing because it allows me to look at questions in different ways. You know, in
1: our first episode, we spoke to um, Rich Lesser, um, uh, the global chair of BCG, and, and he was talking about um, Satya Nadella, who he admires, another another Microsoft protege, And um, he was saying that, you know, one of the things that um, he does very well is he implements and adopts a learn-it-all mindset, not a know-it-all mindset. It sounds similar to what you're describing.
3: I think that's absolutely right. The the learning organization, this is similar to Agile, right? For those that are familiar with Agile transformation and Agile methodology, it really comes down to learn, learn, learn. Um, Because at the end of the day, we're in a world that is moving so quickly. We're in a world that is highly competitive If you think you know it all, you might for that second and then you become obsolete.
1: This ability to learn and to stay curious harkens back to our conversation with Julie about parenting. You know, I'm thinking, Julia, as well. I've I a, I've a toddler, she's two and a half, and I sort of think this kind of echoes a lot of the, uh, the, the parenting literature that I consume, where it's sort of like, all right, I don't know the answers, I'm going to try and find and, and learn strategy. I, I'm, I love that you brought up the parenting example. So I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, so I am
3: living it every day. And one of the things that I say to my son very frequently is, mistakes are learning. Mistakes are mm-hmm. learning. Now, what's behind that, of course, is that in order to make a mistake, that means you have to fail. And as a parent, that means you need to put them in a position to safely fail. Mm-hmm. And that can feel very, very uncomfortable. And I think as a leader, as one of the challenges for leaders too, as an organization, is how do you set an environment where folks can fail slash experiment, right? Because that is how you learn. Now, if you're trying to command and control everything, you're you're weakening that muscle around experimentation, around innovation, and around learning. And so setting the right environment where folks can try new things and learn, it can feel uncomfortable in the short term, but it's really an investment in the long term in capabilities that will become so critical for every organization going forward.
1: Yeah. And it just, it, it's so true in terms of you know, I was thinking about like what gentle parenting, you know, some people eye roll about this idea of gentle parenting, but gentle parenting is, is sort of a, as you say, giving, giving children and I guess mapping onto a business sort of, you know, giving people in the business arena, the ability to safely fail and make mistakes and know that it will be a moment and a a situation for learning.
3: I think that's absolutely right. And I, how do you enable them mm. to succeed? And I think so often, business leaders, they, there's incentives and there's enablers, right? And so often they think about incentives, and incentives are very important. And we know that as parents, right? Like mm-hmm. if you do X, you get a cookie, right? Or if you do this bad thing, you're going to have to go sit in the corner, whatever it might be. But um, but so often the challenge is not will; it's skill. And when the challenge is skill, then the question is, how do you enable people? What information do you give them? What opportunities do you forward to them? What sort of training and coaching do you give to them? And so I think that's especially important for business leaders. It's true for parents as well, right? Like how do you enable your child with the right skills so they feel comfortable failing, but so that they learn and so that they can be self-sufficient and run on their own. It's the same as a business leader. What do you offer to your folks so that they feel comfortable trying and failing and learning and then running self-sufficiently so that you have this really turbocharged organization of people who are empowered and self-sufficient as opposed to folks who look up to you for all of the answers,
1: that, that doesn't work in this world anymore. It all comes back down to modeling and leaders realizing that failure is a necessary part of growth that should be integral to the core strategy of any company. Because. If
3: you're not feeling a little uncomfortable, I would ask, are you are you pushing yourself, Mm. right? It's like, you know, I I did rock climbing, you know, before I had children. And there's a saying that if, if you didn't fall, you didn't try. Meaning like you're not really doing anything interesting and really pushing yourself on the wall if you're not falling at all. And I think it's true in terms of interactions with people. If you don't feel a little uncomfortable from time to time, if you feel like I'm totally in with this, this group of people and we vibe and we don't even like we can... We get each other. I mean, that's good. and It's a good feeling. But are you really, is your thinking really being pushed? And I think in an organization as a leader, it is an imperative for you to put yourself in situations that are a little uncomfortable because that leads to learning.
1: Believing that surviving our trials and tribulations will lead to something great can feel far fetched, even trite. But for leaders like Jacqueline, who've weathered the highs and lows of business, failure is foundational It's the lows that inform strategies that move us forward and help us transform.
2: What I am here to do is whatever I can to encourage a new generation, not to fear failure, a new generation to recognize that we're all needed to solve the problems that may seem too big, too overwhelming uh, to get started. I have said to my team recently, There's something about being 60 um, where I feel after 20 years of running Acumen, now I really understand how we can solve really big problems. And I feel a sense of rebirth and renewal because on the one hand, I feel braver than I've ever felt. But it's not just understanding the upside. I also understand how to get things done. Mm. And maybe that means it's going to be the best chapter ever.
1: You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we go from getting back up when we fail to rebuilding when we break.